Hi, this is Stephanie James, and you're listening to Topa Talk. In this episode, we are lucky enough to interview Dr. Daniel Cox, who is the head of medicine at Ventura County Medical Center. Cody and I are extremely grateful and excited to be delivering this episode to, to you during such an unprecedented time in our community and in the world. This pandemic has completely altered the way that we are living and it is scary and it's confusing and so we are here to hopefully give you some concise and accurate information to help you live your life with a little bit more understanding of COVID-19. Once again, I don't think Cody and I could say thank you enough to Dr. Daniel Cox for coming on and spending time with us and answering all of the questions that all of our listeners wrote in. In addition, this episode is recorded with everybody in separate rooms, which means I myself called Cody and I called Dr. Cox and we had a merged phone call. The quality of sound is going to be less than. If you have any questions, if you're confused by anything that has been said, please reach out to us in our DMs or email us at topatalks, that's topatalk with an S at gmail.com and we can car- clarify any questions that you may have. So let's get right down to it. Hello, hello. Hi, Cody. This is Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. It's Cody. Are we all here or is it just you and I? We're all here. Hi, Cody. Hi, nice to meet you over the phone. I see you as well. I wish it was in person. <laughs> I know. Later days that will have to happen, but thank you so much for doing that. Of course. Okay. Thank you. So the three voices that everyone listening to is myself, Stephanie, um, Dr. Cox, who is our special guest today, who will be talking to us all about Corona-19, a.k.a. coronavirus, a.k.a. Miss Rona. We also have, of course, the lovely Cody Creighton on the phone. Hello, everybody. Danny, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, the hospital you work at, and some tips on social distancing? Absolutely. So I moved down to this area a few years ago, and I've been working at Ventura County Medical Center for the last few years. It's uh, one of the safety net hospitals in the area. It is the safety net hospital in Ventura County. And um, basically, as, as we all sort of watched the march of coronavirus across the globe from December where I think it was this thing that we all thought was very far away and it was sort of this nebulous concept. To now, here we are in Ventura County where we have over 100 cases. We've had five deaths to date attributed to this disease. And, you know, unfortunately, um, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's why social distancing is so important. And, you know, we're all, you know, we've all been following Governor Newsom's mandate to stay home and shelter in place. You know, many of us are not working. Um, many of us may have lost our jobs. Schools are closed. It's, it's difficult. And I think a lot of us wonder, you know, why, like, why are we doing this? This is, you know, is the, I've heard this argument of the economic pain worse than the disease itself. And, you know, what we've seen in places that unfortunately weren't able to socially distance early enough, they've, they've had really severe surges and a high loss of life. In Italy, in northern Italy, the mortality rate from this, from confirmed cases, is approaching 10% which is a lot worse than, than other countries like Singapore, uh, South Korea, Japan, where it's south of 1%. And so you can see that the way that we respond as societies to the disease actually has a tremendous impact on how deadly the disease is. It's the same virus, the same effect on people, but it's really whether the healthcare system gets overwhelmed or not that determines how because if you need 10 ventilators but you only have one, then there's going to be a lot more loss of life than if you have enough ventilators for everyone. And so that's sort of the main reason why we're doing this social distancing experiment that none of us have really lived through anything like this before in our lives. 
happen all at once because this virus is very contagious. And if we were all living our lives normally right now, if we were all just sort of going about, going to school, going to work, hanging out with our friends, partying, doing all the things that we love to do as humans um, here in Monterey County, unfortunately, the, the virus would spread very rapidly to the entire population. And many of us would be okay, but many of us wouldn't. And all of those people would get sick at the same time and overwhelm the hospital system. And so with social distancing, you create a situation where you're, you're reducing the rate of transmission significantly so that the hospital can handle the load and kind of spread it out over a longer period of time. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that is an amazing explanation. And that got me thinking. So um, you're talking about helping hospitals and health workers. What are, what are you guys doing at your hospital to kind of get ready for, for what you think is coming? Yeah, I was just working on this all day today. You know, we um, it's not normal for us to sort of think about the possibility of almost any patient that walks into the ER bringing coming in with coronavirus. So, so this, you know, this disease, this, this virus can present in a lot of different ways. And, you know, we all have heard about the fevers and the cough and the shortness of breath. Um, but there's a lot of things that can kind of look like that. You know, people that have heart failure and um, COPD from smoking. And, you know, there's, this is like kind of the run of the mill stuff that we treat in the hospital anyway. And so, you know, we're, we're having to have a high index of suspicion for catching this because if you miss it, then a lot of people can get infected in the hospital, you know, personnel, um, nurses, doctors, and then other patients. And so, you know, we have a really, really intense screening regimen now. So if you're coming into the emergency room and you're sick and, and you're really, if there's any suspicion that you might have it, you know, you're, you're likely to be screened because we don't want to miss it. Um, and so our capacity to kind of triage patients that may be coming with coronavirus has gone way, way up compared to, you know, a month ago, what we can, how, how many tests we can do, um, how many isolation rooms we have. Um, certainly, you know, we've all heard on the news, you know, the shortages of personal protective equipment, you know, masks, gloves, face shields, gowns, et cetera. And so, you know, massive education on how we can conserve these precious supplies and, and so that we're, we're able to, you know, take care of our patients and ourselves as we move forward. And then just, you know, there's, you may, you may remember from the Ebola crisis not too long ago, um, how important it was for those healthcare providers to get in and out of their protective gear in a really um, safe way so that they didn't contract the virus. So a lot of education on how to do that for ourselves as well so that, you know, we can stay safe for ourselves, our families, and, and continue to care for and work for um, the, the, the residents of Ventura County. So um, it, it's been, you know, about five days, with, sorry, five months, five weeks, excuse me, five weeks, I'm tired, five weeks of, of sort of every second of every day, everyone in the hospital is just preparing, preparing, preparing. Um, and, and I actually think that we, that we as a, a county have done a really good job. I think that um, we are, you know, fortunate that we, you know, we, we're not at the epicenter of a sort of a mini outbreak like you've heard about in New York City and in other like pockets um, around the country, up in Seattle and north of Seattle. You know, we I think had the benefit of having more time to prepare, and I think that's going to help us. You know, I hope I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm an optimist, and I really do think that you know we we sort of got on the bandwagon early in terms of the social distancing relative to our own um, sort of. Uh, incidents of coronavirus here in Ventura County and that that is going to benefit us. And, and I truly am hopeful that with the measures in place that that this won't be as bad as we're hearing it on the news from other places. And, and we've had some good news recently. Um, you know, just, just actually yesterday, um, there was a, a sort of a new graph about the cumulative incidents of coronavirus in different states. And you know, New York, New York State with New York City was sort of off the charts and some other states um, in the Northeast as well. And, and we're actually relative to some other states in the United States, we're, we're doing very well. We were very, very low in terms of um, sort of the infection rate per 100,000 people here 
lower than other places in California. We're lower than the Bay Area. We're lower than LA. So, I, again, I am hopeful, um, and I and we're, we're as prepared as I think we could possibly could be. And yet, of course, all of this preparation and sacrifice from everyone in hospitals and the citizens of this county, it's all so that we want to be quiet, right? We don't want that huge surge. Um, we, we need to remain vigilant, and, and it will save lives. You know, it really will save lives um, through our vigilance. And it comes down to, at this point, in my opinion, people really taking it seriously um, as citizens. Of course, in the medical field, you all take everything seriously, and we are so grateful for that. And I hope that people can continue to social distance and they don't get, you know, per se fatigued by it and they realize that they are, you know, saving lives by not going out and just thinking, well, what's one day with my friends at the beach or something like that? And we, you know, we put out some feelers to see if anyone may have questions for you, which we got a lot of responses, and Stephanie and I are each going to ask some questions that we got that were great if you're open to answering them. We're glad we'd love to. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. The first one that I got was from a listener who said, does COVID-19 transfer on soft surfaces, an example, clothes and the couch? That's a great question. And actually, there was just... Um, a study published in the Manual of Medicine about this, where they looked at, uh, it was sort of a bioengineering study where they put some of the virus on lots of different surfaces and looked at its rate of decay, its half-life, how quickly it dissipated over time. And so different surfaces are more or less hospitable to the virus. And so, you know, the surfaces that where it seems to kind of hang out the most are plastic surfaces. So you can imagine, like, a grocery cart, the plastic kind of handle, right? That's an example of plastic surface. Um, and it can hang out on those kinds of, kinds of surfaces for three days in this one study. Um, metals were, and sort of solid surfaces are, tend to be more hospitable. So metal is a solid surface. So that was, you know, six to 24 hours. Things like paper, um, cotton and, and you know, just clothes, sofa material, um, it's, it's less and, and it's sort of, it's safer and, you know, one can expect a lot of the virus to decay over the hour, hour over the space of minutes to hours. So, you know, not to say that there's no possibility there couldn't be any remnants of virus, but relatively speaking, you know, you know I'll, I'll give this an example. I wear scrubs to work and, you know, I come home and I put them in a laundry bag and, we're, and I'll, you know, wash these separate from other clothes and I feel personally, you know, safe that if I wait two or three days, that the, there's not going to be much virus still alive on that clothing material, which is sort of similar to sofa material. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I have another question. Yeah. Um, what do you think could happen in the future with the virus mutating next season? That's a great question. And I think that the influenza virus actually is something that's a good virus. It's already out there. We kind of have a lot of experience with it. And it's a good thing to think about in terms of what that virus does and, and how it changes from one year to another and think about that relative to coronavirus. So, you know, we all have heard about the flu. We unfortunately probably gotten the flu. We've gotten hopefully the flu vaccine. Um, and yet we know that the flu itself, you know, changes year to year to year to year. And the, if you have never had a flu ever in your life and you get the flu, you're going to have a really bad case of it. But if you've had some other version of the flu or a vaccine and you get a slightly mutated version of it, there usually is some immunity that your, your immune system has built up. Even if the antibodies that you've accumulated aren't perfect against that particular strain, they work pretty well. So you might get sick, but probably not as sick as you would have gotten had you never been exposed. So if I theoretically were to contract you know, COVID-19, 
Um, and and when we when we say COVID nineteen, that stands for coronavirus disease, which was from the year twenty nineteen. So when we say COVID nineteen, that's coronavirus disease nineteen, which was twenty nineteen. The virus itself that causes COVID nineteen is SARS CoV two. Um, so that's if you if you've seen that sort of name out there, um, SARS CoV two. That's the virus that causes the disease COVID nineteen, just like. HIV virus causes AIDS. SARS-CoV-2 causes COVID-19. So um, if SARS-CoV-2, this virus, were to mutate suddenly and you got it now and then you got it again in a year, chances are it would be, a, a, you know, chances are it would be a much more mild case. Um, so, so, you know, when they hopefully come out with a vaccine in the next 8 to 12 months, you know, hopefully there's going to be a lot of brilliant people out there working on that problem, but right now, um, the hope is that that vaccine would confer, you know, not perfect, mm-hmm. not necessarily perfect immunity, but significant immunity to this virus. Amazing. And, and the, the, yeah, the only other thing I'll add to that in terms of immunity is that, you know, people wonder, well, if I catch it today and then I get better, can I catch it in a month? And your immune system ramps up and you've got all these antibodies floating around and you're going to be good for a good bit of time and your immunity wanes slowly over time so that in, in maybe a couple of years you might, be, you might be less immune, but you're going to have built up a good amount of immunity at least for six months, I would say, um, if you were to catch it. Amazing. I was just going to say that that you just basically answered two questions in one. We had another question that was very similarly tied to that. Um, so, Cody, your your turn. <laughs> so, I also got a question that said, do I really have to sanitize every item I bought from the grocery store? Yeah, that's a, gosh, that's a great question. And, you know, I think that you know, that really comes down to your your level of risk and also that idea that I just put out there that, you know, the virus is going to decay on surfaces over time. So, you know, if you wanted to play it safe, you could just kind of put all that stuff in the closet and wait a few days and you probably wouldn't have to do as much sanitizing. Um, to the extent that, you know, there could be someone who works in the store, who is loading the shelves, who might have it, right? You know, these are all hypotheticals, but, you know, there's probably a low chance of each one of those steps. So, you know, people are going to have different risk tolerances for that. And maybe if you have rheumatoid arthritis and you're taking steroids for your for your disease, you might have a higher threshold, um, or I'll say a lower threshold, to, to kind of really go all, all, all out and disinfect and someone that's perfectly healthy and kind of just has a different perspective on, on the illness um, may have a lower threshold. The one thing I will say that it, it sort of has come up a lot and I've noticed this is, you know, you hear in the news, oh, this is something that's, this is a disease of old people. If I'm young, if I'm 25, 30, I've got nothing to worry about. And, and, I, and I've got kind of two things to say about that. One is that, yes, it is true that the chances of dying from this disease are much lower when you're, when you're younger, like significantly lower. I mean, the, the difference of a, of a 90-year-old might have a mortality of 20%, and a 30-year-old, it's like you know, 0.3%, right? That's a vast difference, but it's not zero. Um, and, and I, you know, there have been enough cases in our country. I've got friends that are doctors that are practicing in New York city and in Seattle and in San Francisco. And they've talked about, you know, their colleagues, meaning like other doctors that are 30, that are in the ICU on ventilators right now. So these are young, healthy people. So it's not, you know, I've heard people say, let's just, I just want to get it. I just want to get it so that I need to be over it. I don't have to quarantine anymore. And, you know, I can honestly say you don't want to get it. One of someone in my own family, um, unfortunately has, has gotten it and they had fevers for 
over two weeks. I mean, it's like the flu for two weeks. And, and that was, you know, not the severe case. I had to go to the hospital, but they were really miserable for a long time. So, so you don't want to get it because it, imagine having a flu for two weeks. I mean, that's a horrible idea just in and of itself. Um, there is unfortunately a chance. There's always that chance that you could have in a really severe case, even though you're pretty young and healthy and you could wind up in the hospital. You could, you can wind up on a ventilator if there are ventilators available. So it's not something to be trifled with. It's not something that you want to get. And then the other thing is that you might have a mild case of it. You know, there are people that actually have very little few symptoms, right? They have almost no symptoms, but it's just that. So you have almost no symptoms. And then because of that, you feel, you know, you're just living your life more normally. And then you pass it to someone, maybe a parent, maybe another person that you love that doesn't have a good, as good of an interest as you, and they might get really sick. And I think that everyone's awareness of that as well, that this isn't just about, this is not just about each of us, but it's also about our relationship to other people we love and knowing that we're all possible conduits in this virus to those people and they might not have the strong immune system with ourselves. And, you know, we can all imagine we would never want something, anything to happen to anyone we love sort of because we were a little bit too cavalier ourselves. So, so it's, you know, it's important to think about that. Yeah. And that, that is hugely important during this time. Another question that uh, definitely has been on my mind a lot. Uh, my sister's pregnant and uh, someone wrote in, how does it affect pregnant women and the baby that they're carrying? It's a really good question. And, and certainly a lot of people are thinking about that and we're still, just a couple months into this virus so that the amount of data out there, you know, you know, of course, you know, in a year's time, I'm sure there's going to be seven large studies on exactly that question. Preliminarily, there, the preliminary evidence is that by and large, fortunately, the virus has not, um, seems to have impacted pregnant women who are relatively immunocompromised, meaning their immune systems are, you know, a little bit weaker than maybe normal, um, but it hasn't seemed to have affected pregnant women that much more different than like their their anyone else of their age group, which is which is great. Um, and then the other thing people think about is, well, could could I, could this pass to my, you know, to the baby inside me? Right, and that's another question that comes up and. There, the chances of that are very, very low. Um, there, there have been a few, you know, again, the evidence, the sample sizes that we have, the, the data we have out there is small, um, but it's, it has been documented very, very rarely, and there have been a few cases of it, but it's ex- exceedingly low for what we know at this point in time, and um, the babies that were born with this did okay. You know, there was, they were able to take care of those babies and there was a very few cases. So, um, I actually, you know, my wife and I have uh, friends right now that is pregnant, um, that unfortunately did contract coronavirus and she's doing okay. You know, she has flu-like symptoms, but, um, she's doing okay. And, and, you know, we fully expect her to pull through this and and be okay in the end. Wow. Thank you for sharing that personal information as well. Yeah, of course. We we have another question that doesn't sound quite as heavy as the previous one, but someone is curious <laughs> if fast food is safe. Yeah, so you're, I guess you're wondering, you know, is it safe to kind of go pick up fast food, and it's and and is it is it how does the virus spread? I think that's what kind of this question gets at. That is it really like is it spread by kind of you know being right next to someone having a cough on you or sneeze on you and, and share that same air or can can it spread by someone who might have the virus cooking the food that you then eat and um, it's a great question um, so the, I would say that the, 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 the primary route of, of transmission is through prolonged contact with people um, you know, breathing the same air, uh, like the coughing, the sneezing, 
the, the if you you know here's the thing if you can smell what someone ate for lunch you're breathing the air that they're breathing so so that's the other thing that people it's a good way you're like okay I can smell what you ate for lunch I better you know take a few steps back because that's the appropriate distance which is six feet um that's actually what they found is that six feet is the, the appropriate social distance to not be breathing the same air that someone else is breathing out um. And so even though someone may not be coughing right in your face, if they were to have the virus and you could breathe what they're breathing for lunch, you're, you could actually catch it from them. That's, that's, that's a true statement. So, so that's the primary route that we're finding or thinking that people catch it, though. You know, we've all heard about the cruise ships and, you know, there was the case of, you know, the, the couple that had it and then they got off in Mexico and then, you know, other people that got on and caught it, presumably from the people that had already left the ship because it was like on the surfaces of the handles or whatever it was. Um, food itself is one of the ways, you know, we, one of the ways the virus gets into our bodies, you know, it's through our mouths, our nose, or our eyes. Those are the three places that, that we can kind of contract the virus. So if you touch the virus, it's on a handle, and you rub your eyes, that you can get the virus. If you rub your nose, you can get the virus. Or if you touch your mouth, you can get it. So I would say it's, it's probably less likely and lower risk than other things, but I it's, I would say that's not a non-zero, you know. Do I get takeout? Yes, I do. You know, and just like, that's, but that's me, but am I acknowledging that, that there is a risk to that? There is probably a small risk, and, you know, it's just we all have to draw our lines in the sand. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier about exactly what you just said is about assessing risk and deciding what you want to do for yourself and your family. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, we Everyone's have... going to have a different take on this. Um, and it, they're going to have a different take maybe because they might live with their grandmother. Um, or they may be over 65 or 55 themselves. Um, or they may be taking medications that make their immune system not as strong as, as other people. Yeah. I'm going to give you a two-part question, kind of, because I feel like they'll kind of okay. be connected. Um, mm-hmm. The first part of the question is, how long from exposure until you develop symptoms? And if you are an asymm- if you are someone who carries it but doesn't get symptoms, how long are you contagious for? Oh, those are both great questions. So... The median incubation time from, so I'll start answer if there's a few parts to that. So the first is, how what percentage of people out there are asymptomatic? Meaning they have the virus, they get the virus, you know, maybe someone coughs on them or they, you know, they touch something, they touch their eye, they get it. And, and they have no symptoms, but if you were to test them, they actually have the virus in their body. And and there was a couple cases of this where they kind of had it, they could have many experiments. And one was actually one of these cruise ships where, you know, when they, everyone got off the cruise ship, they tested every single person on the cruise ship to see if they had the virus. And on the Diamond Princess cruise ship, there were 700 people that tested positive. At the time that they tested them, only half had symptoms. So half of the people, when they tested them, didn't have any symptoms at all. Now, they continued to follow and monitor those people that didn't have symptoms, and most did end up developing symptoms, uh, ultimately. Um, but you know, in, in that case series, 18% of people, so about one in five, didn't have, they literally had no idea. They had they had no symptoms whatsoever for the entire course of their disease. Wow. Um, so so, so what, we've, what we believe is that Somewhere between, probably, you know, there's different studies, and it's it's hard to know so far. We're not sure, but somewhere between ten to thirty percent of people, so one in ten to three in ten, um, have no symptoms whatsoever, and yet those people can still transmit the disease, which is kind of shocking. You know, it's like, oh wow, I, I, that's hard to. You know, it's hard to kind of know that. And you're like, well, what do I, how do I know? And, and, and honestly, the best piece of advice I believe it came from the Minister of Health in New Zealand was this. And the, the, the advice of this person was this. Behave and act 
as if you have it. And that's how you should be social distancing. Basically, put, if everyone if everyone acted as if they themselves had it, that would be the way that we should all be kind of taking care of each other and and you know not sharing you know food and you know washing our hands and just think if I had it, how would I prevent myself from giving it to these other people that I live with or these other people I work with? If you knew you had it, you would just really go out of your way to. You know, not touch things, use your elbows, you know, of course, wash your hands like a million times, um, not talk near people, stay away from people. And that is how we should all be behaving. Um, so, so how long from, so now let's say you're going to get symptoms. Let's say you're going to actually, you know, you're, you're not the 10 to 30% that won't have any symptoms. You're going to get symptoms and you're probably going to have bad flu-like symptoms or worse. Um, the median incubation time is four to five days. Wow. The range, it, the meaning from when you, let's say, like today, I, someone coughs on me and they have coronavirus and I breathe it in. The mean time from when I'm infected to when I start to have that fever or that cough or whatever is four to five days. And that's, like, if you look at all people, that's the, the most common time duration. It can be as fast as two days or as long as 10 to 12 days. So the range of time from exposure to symptoms is anywhere from two days to 12 days. Um, if you do develop symptoms, some people don't. Um, but, but most people do, most people do develop symptoms, right? They, most people do develop fever. Most people do develop a cough. Um, and you know, let's talk about the symptoms, fever, cough, shortness of breath, sort of feeling like, um, some people will also feel sort of like really achy muscle aches or joint aching, um, along the wrist chills. Uh, a lot of people describe having a headache also with these symptoms and sometimes a sore throat. So some, those are sort of the, the symptoms that, you know, kind of come with this, um, this virus and, the people that, um, you know, what, what I've heard is that, that people kind of, they start to get sicker and then they get sicker and they kind of just get worse and worse and worse. Like just every day it seems to get worse than the one before. And they kind of, so a slower, longer course, you know, the flu, you might hear about the 24 to 40 hour flu. I got really sick for just a little bit of time. And I get better with coronavirus. It can linger. It can linger for a longer period of time. Now, how long are you infectious? And, and, We'll talk about both asymptomatic and symptomatic people. Um, what they think is that you're infectious. Certainly, for people with symptoms, certainly from the, when you develop symptoms, like at that moment in time when you feel your first symptom, you are definitely infectious. And you are infectious for seven days from your first symptoms or three days from your last fever, whichever is longer. So let's say I develop symptoms today um, and I can have a fever for a couple of days and then my fever goes away. The theory is that you're going to be infectious for seven days from when this came today, from when the symptoms started. Now, if I start getting symptoms today and I have fevers for, for eight days, then it's going to be eight plus three days, uh, about 11 days till... Um, so you're going to stop being infectious. So the fever is actually, a, you know, a part of the way our body senses that we are still really having a revved up immune system and the virus is still really active in our body. That's getting a fever. So certainly when you're fevering, you're very infectious and for a few days afterwards. Um, so, you know, one of the things that people think about is, well, am I infectious for a period of time before I have symptoms? And the jury is still out on that question in terms of how long, but people are thinking about 12 to 24 hours before your symptoms start, you could be infectious. Maybe not everyone, but they think that some people may be infectious for a period of time before their symptoms start. Um, it's, it's difficult to know, of course, but that's, that's the theory, at least. And then, then for people that have no symptoms, um, they too are likely infectious and it likely is for somewhere on the order of 
five to eight days where they, they, they are considered infectious. And, and that's one of the reasons why this virus has spread so quickly and, and so far and so fast is because there are many people out there that just have no idea they have it and they're living, they were living their lives and, and they were these quote-unquote super spreaders that were um, transmitting the disease to a lot of different people sort of because they didn't know that they were sick. A lot of people, I think, feel invincible and it's disheartening and I really like that quote of behave and act as if you have it. And I think if people had that mentality, it would be extremely helpful in stopping all this sooner. And with that said, with all this kind of curiosity around whether or not people have it, we also got a question that asked, when do you think we will get the five-minute test from Abbott? That's a great question, yeah. So, so the you know, we, we've heard about that Abbott test um, uh, Donald Trump talked about that, I think, on a press briefing. It just was sort of uh, approved by the FDA, um, I think, this, in the last few days. I think that they're, you know, they just got approval. That specific company is ramping up production, and I think that they're going to be able to deliver that product within the next month. Um, that being said, you know, there are other companies that have actually already been working on this, and I know my hospitals are um, going to be getting uh, a different device that also can work, you know, maybe not in five minutes, but maybe three, 30 minutes. So there's, there's a number of different companies, many different companies, I should say, because obviously there's a lot of money being made and there's a lot of people working on this that um, have developed testing capabilities that are going to be a lot faster than the. 24 to 48 hours or the, even the three to seven days that you may be hearing on the news. And I, I hope that over the coming months, the ability to get tested and to have the results back within a day, you know, the same day you get tested and then you get, you get the results back will be much, much higher. And, you know, why is testing important? Testing is important because it can help if we were able to test more rapidly, it would allow us as a society to get back to business as usual faster because, okay, I, I sort of feel, you know, a little bit off and I get tested right away and, oh, I have it. Okay, now I know for me, myself, I need to really distance myself from everyone I know and my family, et cetera, and maybe they'll all get tested too to see if any of them have already had it. But in the current situation where so hard to get tested and only this we have such few tests that only the sickest of the sick get tested so many of us don't know if we have it and probably there are a lot of us that might have had it because we had that cold but it was not sick enough to really warrant going to the doctor but maybe that was coronavirus and and we didn't get tested and so we weren't necessarily acting as if we did have it and back to that quote we just talked about acting if you have it well I think that if people actually knew they had it they would behave differently um, then oh I maybe have it but I probably don't so I'm not going to really change my life and you know keep hanging out with people so um, the that habit test kit is coming um, you know there are other companies that are also putting this out and I promise you that every you know every hospital system every hospital is going to you know acquire capabilities along those lines in the not too distant future and you know, there is a cost factor as well, and, um, you know, the, that's that's also our healthcare system right now, right? We don't have universal healthcare in our country, and, you know, we don't have a government that's sort of, like, paying for everyone to get these tests. And so, they, these are all sort of the factors. There, there is, we do live in sort of resource scarcity, and every hospital is trying to figure out, you know, with their resources, should they be spending their money on those test, test capabilities or on gowns and gloves for their doctors and nurses. So, you know, we'll, we'll see, but I do, I will say that that test is coming and, and added, then there's a few other companies and, and my hope is that our ability to test the population at large will be dramatically improved over the coming months. And, you know, in South Korea, um, they've been testing everybody. It's, it's so easy to get tested and, and Germany as well, you know, they're, they've really done an exceptional job of ramping up their testing 
so that everyone can get tested and that can help with decision making for individuals and as and for society. Yeah, of course. I think that's important and looking forward to seeing that for sure. I have a question that you may have answered um, and that I'm probably going to botch. So hold on tight. Uh, the question is, yeah. is COVID-19 aerosolized or from droplets? And I think you were explaining that about like from transmission. Is it aeros- aerosolized or from droplets? Does that make sense to you? Sorry. That's a, yeah, that's a great question. So, um, Aerosol is it kind of hangs out in the air and floats around in the air, and droplet is it sort of goes with the um, kind of liquid particles that might come out of our mouth when we cough or sneeze. Got it. And so we think about flu, like flu is something that's droplet. Um, it lives on a droplet. It's not like just you you are, you know you breathe it and it can just float in the air and you know float. 100 feet and someone can breathe in way over there. An example of things that are airborne, you know, is, is a disease that we fortunately with vaccination largely removed from our planet is measles. Measles is airborne and if someone breathes out and they have measles and someone 100 feet away a minute later can breathe that measles virus in and catch it. And so when something is airborne, it is a lot more dangerous so the good news is that coronavirus is considered droplet and not airborne. So that's the good news. It's, it means that, you know, it's, we're talking about six feet, which is sort of how far droplets can go and not 100 feet, which is what measles is. Got it. Um, in the hospital setting, we think about this because there are procedures that can, that can aerosolize different viruses. So when we intubate or when we do other sort of modes of ventilation, helping people breathe, um, using certain kinds of devices to help people get more oxygen. Those procedures in the hospital can, can the procedures are, are, are kind of creating aerosol um, in the gases and the admixtures of the virus with those gases. It's not sort of like normal life. You know, it's not like it, the, the virus isn't kind of aerosolizing in normal life, but we, there are, procedures that we do in the hospital that we that make us concerned that it can aerosolize in the hospital, which is why, um, you know, doctors and nurses are aware of this and, you know, we mostly treat it as droplet, but if those procedures are happening, then we would take care to treat it as such as an aerosol situation. How does that impact, you know, you, you hear about aerosol versus droplet and masks. So, um, you know, I think that People have masks on their mind. You know, it's hard to find them. People wear them. What's that all about? Um, if something is aerosol, <clears throat> um, aerosolized, which fortunately it looks like coronavirus is not, that's when you use those N95 masks. Um, now, the good news is this is not aerosolized, so you don't need those fancy masks. Um a, a surgical or procedure mask, just one of those like regular masks that you might get when you go to the doctor and you have a cold and they give you one of those masks. That's all that's needed to uh, per- protect uh, oneself or other people. And I think it, another thing to kind of think about with those masks is that a lot of people think I'm wearing the mask to protect myself from other people. But actually, those masks and masks in general are most effective at protecting yourself from other people because you're kind of catching your breath right there as it's leaving your mouth and any particles and droplets that you're exhaling or coughing or sneezing or getting caught right in the mask right at the source. So um, that's sort of why uh, you might see in other societies like Japan, China, everyone's wearing masks. Every single person on the street's wearing masks in the setting of this outbreak and, and why the CDC is actually considering for this virus, um, saying to people that it's okay if you, you feel like you want to wear one of those surgical masks when you're out and about, and, and remembering that it's not about protecting yourself from other people, but it's actually protecting other people from you. So that's sort of an interesting thing to think about it. So does that change in the CDC's tune make you nervous for PPE for your hospital? 
you know, we're already nervous. I mean, I think every hospital is 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 already nervous about PPE. I mean, it's just this really difficult thing where everyone around the world is dealing with the same virus at the same time, and a lot of the places in the world where this stuff is made, China makes a third of all the sort of medical protective equipment for the entire world. Uh, you know, has just been in the middle of their own outbreak, and so they all their factories. You know, we're shut down. Their economy shut down. So, you know, they're maybe just coming back online a little bit now. But, but now the demand is, you know, maybe ten times, twenty times higher than it was before. So, every single hospital is um, is really worried about this. So, so to that specific question, you know, if we're all socially distancing and staying home the way we're supposed to you're not actually going to have any need to wear a mask, right? Masks are only if you were to be out amongst a lot of people, which none of us should be doing anyway, because we're all taking care of each other in staying home and sacrificing so that we don't spread this virus. Um, there's no question that right now it's the frontline providers. So, you know, your ambulance workers, firefighters, and doctors, nurses, people in the hospital that need that equipment, those masks most, because they're the ones that are using it every day to take care of people that are sick with this disease. And you want, so if you were to get it, or if your mom or dad or grandma or grandfather were to get it, you'd want the doctors and nurses that were taking care of them to have the, the, the equipment they needed to, to safely take care of them and everyone else. So, I actually will sort of put this out there. There are, if you go to vcemergency.com, listed on that site is um, locations where you could donate, say, masks that you might have accrued for whatever reason, and you want to make sure that your, um, you know, your doctors, nurses, and, and you know, EMS have the gear that they need to take care of everyone. Um, please go there and, and donate whatever you can because it really will be appreciated and it will make our entire community safer. Thank you for sharing that. So what you're saying is that people perhaps, when this all began happening, bought a surplus of these masks, but they're now realizing it's not necessary to have so many of them stockpiled. They could go to bcemergency.com to donate these masks. Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. Well, that's great to know, and I hope that people are able to do that because it is disappointing to see people that have you know, really stockpiled an obnoxious amount of masks and hand sanitizer and things like that. And it would be a nice way for them to give back if they're able to. You know, you said that it's not an airborne disease. Uh, so we also have a question that says, is it safe to walk around the neighborhood while maintaining a six-foot space from people? Yeah, that's a great great question. And the answer to that is, is yes. You know, I think... Um, absolutely, I would recommend, you know, people take advantage of the trails and what walks around outside. And I think that just the caveat to that is, is, is indeed you have to keep that safe distance. And, you know, if everyone just sort of, if everyone at the same time all went outside and just started walking around and, oh, like, there's my buddy, uh, Jason and oh, there's Maria and now we're all hang, actually starting to hang out and cluster and talk and, that's where you run into problems. But if you're able to kind of really stick to your own space and not get close to people um, and, and also not touch things, right? You know, also don't like go to your that store and then like start touching everything because you're visiting it. Um, but there's, there should be no, no issues with just the act of being outside and breathing in fresh air. If you're, t if you're keeping your safe distance, that is a safe thing to do. Um, just, just avoid, you know, kind of avoid other people as best you can, and, and avoid, you know, touching surfaces that you know you're not able to kind of clean your hands. And there's some statistic where we all, we all, without knowing it, touch our face something like six times a minute. Where whether we kind of brush our eye or you know rub our nose or you know wipe our lips because they're dry, um, we, we just have a, a this part of the human condition. We sort of just tend to touch our face and. Once when you start to think about it, you can catch yourself. Um, but that's just another kind of 
you know, in addition to sort of hand hygiene, and I'll actually, I want to do talk a little bit about what, what hand hygiene looks like. Um, but that's sort of for, for just good personal protection and safety. Don't touch your face. That's how, that's how the virus gets into your body. It's when you touch your eyes, your nose, or your mouth. That's how the virus is getting in. So really, really, really avoid touching your face unless you've washed your hands. Um, and now let's talk about hand washing. Gosh, I'm guilty of this too. You know, I turn on the water, I get some soap, I kind of rub for a few seconds, I rub a little bit more, and then I turn the water off and I dry my hands. And it might also take around three to four, maybe five seconds. But when they've actually done the studies, it takes 20 seconds of hand washing to effectively get this virus off your hands. 20 seconds. How long is that? It's singing Happy Birthday, that song, not once but twice. That's how long you have to wash your hands to get it off your hands. Now, do you have to waste water and run water the whole time? No. Here's what I, I recommend. Get a little water, you know, get your hands wet, now put the soap on, and now you can just soap, right? Just using just using the soap and a little bit of water, you can kind of rub and rub and rub your hands for 20 seconds, and then when the 20 seconds is over, turn the water back on and wash, wash everything off. But that is something that I think most people, and including myself, honestly, before the, this whole outbreak, um, you know, we're not necessarily washing our hands the appropriate way, and, and that's what it takes. 20 painful seconds of washing your hands. <laughs> Happy birthday two times. It's, like, it's the longest song anyway. Some people are singing it to you, but then singing it to yourself two times shouldn't be as hard. <laughs> and the truth is, we're not doing anything else anyway. So wash your hands for 20 seconds. What else are you doing? Say, oh, exactly. wash your hands. You know, people, you have a question? I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to say, um, mindfulness, you know, when I think about meditation and mindfulness and what better time to be mindful. And you think about, you know, meditation, you think about mindful walking or mindful breathing, but, you know, there's actually this whole, like, literature of mindful, uh, you know, mindful dishwashing, mindful hand washing. And so, you could just like really think about what's that sensation, like how like like really like focus on it, and and hey, you might enjoy it a little more. That's great advice, Cody. Do you have many more questions? I have one that I find to be an important question. I have a lot of friends with kids. I know you, Doctor Cox. You have children as well. Um, this person asks, true or false? We won't be able to stay with our children if they're hospitalized due to COVID-19. Yeah, so um, that is, it depends. And, and, and so, like, if you look at hospitals in general, my hospital included, and, and it's for safety of, of everyone, staff, patients, et cetera, because the worst thing in the world, right, would be someone with coronavirus coming to the hospital, kind of bringing it into the hospital, right? Um, and, and this is true of also skilled nursing facilities. They're not letting visitors come in. So so that's why visitors have been restricted. That's why basically no one is getting visitors. The exception to that is um, women that are laboring and going through labor um, are able to bring a partner with them, and if they have a professional doula, that at least at a hospital, they're also able to bring that person. Um, and then end of life situations. Um, so if someone's at the end of their life, there's an exception there for visitation. I believe there's also um, an exception for you know a child. <clears throat> now the concern though is that if the child has contracted coronavirus, and we've all been self-isolating as we all know we have then it's, it's likely in the household. And then the concern would be that the parent may also likely, unless, you know, they've been tested, um, have it as well. And, and, and I can say this definitively, no person with coronavirus will be able to enter the hospital as a visitor, right? So, so that is so from a public health perspective. You know, if your child had it, you would likely be quarantined um, by public health appropriately because, you know, you wouldn't want that person spreading it around everywhere. And so that may be, you know, you, a parent, may not be able to go with your child, but someone that's not quarantined from the household, like a grandparent or another 
you know, family friend that's not in your own household, um, if you all living together, could likely go visit that child. And I believe there are exceptions also for children in terms of the visitation policy. But um, but the, the, that that quarantining in the household is something that I think would be in effect. And I, I know it's hard to even imagine that. And, and the, the the way that this virus has impacted visitation, which has impacted loneliness, you know, people that are lonely and sick, it's just it's so sad just to think about people being really lonely and sick in a hospital and not having any to, to stay with them. It's heartbreaking. And I think that's why we have to take this so seriously and the stakes are so high because... It's extremely, I mean, I'm just thinking about all of the trauma that will be coming from patients, nurses, doctors, if we don't take this thing and slow it down. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. we got to slow it down. And, and, that's, and that's what we're doing right now. You know, I feel so, I'm so glad that, that all leaders here in California and our county have taken this so seriously. And I think that by and large, you know, we're all taking it seriously, you know, there's, most people are, are staying home, and, you know, when we walk down, you know, I live in Ojai, and I walk down the main drag, and it's, it's pretty empty, there aren't many cars, and, and that, that tells me there was actually this beautiful post, um, that a friend of mine posted, and it was, it was all about just, just this sort of how, how the sacrifice, I just found it, I'm going to read a little bit of it. Others have said this, but it's worth a reminder. When you go out and see the empty streets, the empty stadiums, the empty train platforms, don't say to yourself, it looks like the end of the world. What you're seeing is love and action. What you're seeing in that negative space is how much we do care for each other, for our grandparents, for our immunocompromised brothers and sisters, for people we will never meet. People will lose jobs over this. Some will lose their businesses and some will lose their lives. All the more reason to take a moment when you're out on your walk or on your way to the store or just watching the news to look into the emptiness and marvel at all of that love. Let it fill you and sustain you. It isn't the end of the world. It is the most remarkable act of global solidarity we may ever witness. That is so beautiful, Dr. Cox. You made me cry a little bit. Jesus. Yep, I'm crying. <laughs> good Lord, that is, that is good. And that's a really great reminder because it's true. This is a huge sacrifice across the globe that in times that we've been living in, this is such a devastating thing that's happening, but it's extremely unifying as well. And I think if more people have that outlook that this is, a sacrifice of love that we have for one another as a human race. I think that we will all be much better off on the other side of this. I really do believe that. Yeah, I, yeah, and I think that it, you know that there's silver lines to everything, and you know, not that this is a good thing, but I've heard so many people say like, "Oh wow, like I'm spending so much more time with my family than I." before or I'm reconnecting with friends that I hadn't connected with you know in a long time I don't have the time to do it and I'm you know using different technologies to like reach out to people around the world that I you know hadn't given my time myself the time to do um or taking these walks um or you know picking up a hobby you know whatever it is that that this sort of weird time in life that there there are these unique thing that are coming out of it, you know, that, you know, find that, find that new perspective that allows you to, um, to feel more connected to a different part of your life than you would have otherwise, you know, even though this obviously this is really scary and it's kind of a terrible thing and we want it over as fast as possible, of course we do, but also if we are in this situation, can we, can we think about it in a different way and gain something from it, you know, in our connection to other people. Yeah, I think, I think those are some powerful words. And I think that, um, for now we're going to have to wrap it up and end it on that, um, new meaning for all of our lives is to, you know, (laughs) go out there and have gratitude. Well, don't go out there first of all, (laughs) but just to have a little bit more gratitude and, 
um, live in that sacrifice and, you know, take meaning from that in a huge way. And I have to express my gratitude for you taking time out of your life to talk with us and talk to the community. Um, it means a lot to me and Cody and I know how busy you are and you have a family and a wife that's sitting in a room right now wishing she was with you. So, um, we appreciate your time so much. Thank you, Dr. On behalf of everybody that asked these questions as well, thank you so much for answering them for us in such an amazing way. And we appreciate you and all the other medical workers that are, that are really helping us through this time. Thanks so much, guys. Okay, have a good night. Thank you, Danny. You too. Thank okay. you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.